Section 13 of The Story of My Life, Part 2, by Helen Keller and John Albert Macy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Section 13, Letters 104 to 110 letter one hundred and four to mr charles t copeland december twentieth nineteen hundred my dear mr copeland i venture to write to you because i am afraid that if i do not explain why i have stopped writing themes you will think i have become discouraged or perhaps that to escape criticism i have beat a cowardly retreat from your class Please do not think either of these very unpleasant thoughts. I am not discouraged, nor am I afraid. I am confident that I could go on writing themes like those I have written, and I suppose I should get through the course with fairly good marks. But this sort of literary patchwork has lost all interest for me. I have never been satisfied with my work, but I never knew what my difficulty was until you pointed it out to me. When I came to your class last October, I was trying with all my might to be like everybody else, to forget as entirely as possible my limitations and peculiar environment. Now, however, I see the folly of attempting to hitch one's wagon to a star with harness that does not belong to it. I have always accepted other people's experiences and observations as a matter of course. It never occurred to me that it might be worthwhile to make my own observations and describe the experiences peculiarly my own. Henceforth I am resolved to be myself, to live my own life and write my own thoughts when I have any. When I have written something that seems to be fresh and spontaneous and worthy of your criticisms, I will bring it to you, if I may, and if you think it good I shall be happy." But if your verdict is unfavorable, I shall try again and yet again until I have succeeded in pleasing you. Letter 105 to Mrs. Lawrence Hutton, 14 Coolidge Avenue, Cambridge, December 27, 1900. So you read about our class luncheon in the papers. How in the world do the papers find out everything, I wonder? I am sure no reporter was present. I had a splendid time. The toast and speeches were great fun. I only spoke a few words, as I did not know I was expected to speak until a few minutes before I was called upon. I think I wrote you that I had been elected vice-president of the freshman class of Radcliffe. Did I tell you in my last letter that I had a new dress, a real party dress with low neck and short sleeves and quite a train? It is pale blue, trimmed with chiffon of the same color. I have worn it only once, but then I felt that Solomon in all his glory was not to be compared with me. Anyway, he certainly never had a dress like mine. A gentleman in Philadelphia has just written to my teacher about a deaf and blind child in Paris, whose parents are Poles. The mother is a physician and a brilliant woman, he says. This little boy could speak two or three languages before he lost his hearing through sickness, and he is now only about five years old. Poor little fellow, I wish I could do something for him, 
but he is so young, my teacher thinks it would be too bad to separate him from his mother. I have had a letter from Mrs. Thaw with regard to the possibility of doing something for these children. Dr. Bell thinks the present census will show that there are more than a thousand in the United States alone. The number of deaf-blind, young enough to be benefited by education, is not so large as this. But the education of this class of defectives has been neglected. And Mrs. Thaw thinks if all my friends were to unite their efforts, it would be an easy matter to establish at the beginning of this new century a new line upon which mercy might travel, and the rescue of these unfortunate children could be accomplished. Letter 106 to Mr. William Wade, Cambridge, February 2nd, 1901. By the way, have you any specimens of English Braille especially printed for those who have lost their sight late in life, or have fingers hardened by long toil, so that their touch is less sensitive than that of other blind people? I read an account of such a system in one of my English magazines, and I am anxious to know more about it. If it is as efficient as they say, I see no reason why English Braille should not be adopted by the blind of all countries. Why, it is the print that can be most readily adapted to many different languages. Even Greek can be embossed in it, as you know. Then, too, it will be rendered still more efficient by the interpointing system, which will save an immense amount of space and paper. There is nothing more absurd, I think, than to have five or six different prints for the blind. This letter was written in response to a tentative offer from the editor of the great round world, to have the magazine published in raised type for the blind, if enough were willing to subscribe. It is evident that the blind should have a good magazine, not a special magazine for the blind, but one of our best monthlies printed in embossed letters. The blind alone could not support it, but it would not take very much money to make up the additional expense. Letter 107 to the Great Round World, Cambridge, February 16, 1901. The Great Round World, New York City. Gentlemen, I have only today found time to reply to your interesting letter. A little bird had already sung the good news in my ear, but it was doubly pleasant to have it straight from you. It would be splendid to have the great round world printed in language that can be felt. I doubt if anyone who enjoys the wondrous privilege of seeing can have any conception of the boon such a publication as you contemplate would be to the sightless. To be able to read for oneself what is being willed, thought, and done in the world, the world in whose joys and sorrows, failures, and successes one feels the keenest interest— that would indeed be a happiness too deep for words. I trust that the effort of the great round world to bring light to those who sit in darkness will receive the encouragement and support it so richly deserves. I doubt, however, if the number of subscribers to an embossed edition of the great round world would ever be large, for I am told that the blind as a class are poor. But why should not the friends of the blind assist the great round world if necessary? Surely there are hearts and hands ever ready to make it possible for generous intentions to be wrought into noble deeds. 
wishing you Godspeed in an undertaking that is very dear to my heart. I am, etc. Letter 108 to Miss Nina Rhodes, Cambridge, September 25th, 1901. We remained in Halifax until about the middle of August. Day after day, the harbor, the warships, and the park kept us busy thinking and feeling and enjoying. When the Indiana visited Halifax, we were invited to go on board, and she sent her own launch for us. I touched the immense cannon, read with my fingers several of the names of the Spanish ships that were captured at Santiago, and felt the places where she had been pierced with shells. The Indiana was the largest and finest ship in the harbor, and we felt very proud of her. After we left Halifax, we visited Dr. Bell at Cape Breton. He has a charming, romantic house on a mountain called Benvria, which overlooks the Bredor Lake. Dr. Bell told me many interesting things about his work. He had just constructed a boat that could be propelled by a kite with the wind in its favor, and one day he tried experiments to see if he could steer the kite against the wind. I was there and really helped him fly the kites. On one of them I noticed that the strings were of wire, and having had some experience in beadwork, I said I thought they would break. Dr. Bell said no with great confidence, and the kite was sent up. It began to pull and tug, and lo, the wires broke, and off went the great red dragon, and poor Dr. Bell stood looking forlornly after it. After that, he asked me if the strings were all right, and changed them at once when I answered in the negative. Altogether, we had great fun. Letter 109 to Dr. Edward Everett Hale Read by Dr. Hale at the celebration of the centenary of Dr. Samuel Gridley Howe at Tremont Temple, Boston, November 11th, 1901. Cambridge, November 10th, 1901. My teacher and I expect to be present at the meeting tomorrow in commemoration of the 100th anniversary of Dr. Howe's birth but I very much doubt if we shall have an opportunity to speak with you. So I am writing now to tell you how delighted I am that you are to speak at the meeting, because I feel that you, better than anyone I know, will express the heartfelt gratitude of those who owe their education, their opportunities, their happiness to him who opened the eyes of the blind and gave the dumb lip language. Sitting here in my study, surrounded by my books, enjoying the sweet and intimate companionship of the great and the wise, I am trying to realize what my life might have been if Dr. Howe had failed in the great task God gave him to perform. If he had not taken upon himself the responsibility of Laura Bridgman's education and led her out of the pit of Acheron back to her human inheritance, should I be a sophomore at Radcliffe College today? who can say? But it is idle to speculate about what might have been in connection with Dr. Howe's great achievement. I think only those who have escaped that death-in-life existence from which Laura Bridgman was rescued can realize how isolated, how shrouded in darkness, how cramped by its own impotence is a soul without thought or faith or hope. Words are powerless to describe the desolation of that prison house, or the joy of the soul that is delivered out of its captivity. 
When we compare the needs and helplessness of the blind before Dr. Howe began his work, with their present usefulness and independence, we realize that great things have been done in our midst. What if physical conditions have built up high walls about us? Thanks to our friend and helper, our world lies upward. The length and breadth and sweep of the heavens are ours. It is pleasant to think that Dr. Howe's noble deeds will receive their due tribute of affection and gratitude in the city which was the scene of his great labors and splendid victories for humanity. With kind greetings in which my teacher joins me, I am affectionately your friend, Helen Keller. Letter 110 to the Honorable George Frisbee Hoare Cambridge, Massachusetts, November 25, 1901 My dear Senator Hoare, I am glad you liked my letter about Dr. Howe. It was written out of my heart, and perhaps that is why it met a sympathetic response in other hearts. I will ask Dr. Hale to lend me the letter so that I can make a copy of it for you. You see, I use a typewriter. It is my right-hand man, so to speak. Without it, I do not see how I could go to college. I write all my themes and examinations on it, even Greek. Indeed, it has only one drawback, and that probably is regarded as an advantage by the professors. It is that one's mistakes may be detected at a glance, for there is no chance to hide them in illegible writing. I know you will be amused when I tell you that I am deeply interested in politics. I like to have the papers read to me, and I try to understand the great questions of the day. But I am afraid my knowledge is very unstable, for I change my opinions with every new book I read. I used to think that when I studied civil government and economics, all my difficulties and perplexities would blossom into beautiful certainties. But alas, I find that there are more terrors than wheat in these fertile fields of knowledge. End of section 13. End of The Story of My Life, Part 2, Letters 1887 to 1901, by Helen Keller and John Albert Macy.